Today, I want to jump into today's uh, text and today's passage. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Speaking of approaching the end of things, we are approaching the end of the series. Next week, we're going to wrap up the series that we started all the way back in August, if you can remember that. This whole semester, we've been camping out in this book, in the study of Ephesians, and we've been spending our time just slowly kind of chewing on God's word, passage by passage, text by text, and we've been unpacking uh, what God has for us. And I want to do the same here today. We're going to start in chapter 5, but we're going to end in chapter 6. We're going to bleed into uh, the opening parts of chapter 6 here this morning. And so we're going to look at a large chunk of Scripture today and uh, hopefully distill this passage down to some key takeaways that I believe God has for us for our time. And so again, if you have your Bibles, look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 22, and uh, we'll carry through um, into, into chapter 6 here. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what it says. The Apostle Paul writes, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We move into chapter 6, and chapter 6 opens up by saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, as we unpack this text, there was a small temptation in me to say, you know what? Let's just skip over this part of Ephesians uh, for, for many regards. One, I felt like, you know, I'm, I realize ACF is a college church. 
when Paul addresses wives and husbands, it kind of feels like, you know, like, you know, unless you're engaged, unless you're ready to get married, you know, like you're, you're just not thinking in that light. Uh, children and parents, none of us are parents here, you know, as far as I know, you know, like there's, there, there, this feels largely irrelevant. Uh, masters and bond servants, like what? You know, like, and so there was a part of me that was like, you know what, let's just, let, let's, let's skip over this part. But, but I, the more I sat on this, the more I felt like, you know what, I I think there's something here, even for a college church like us here at ACF. Friends, I don't know if uh, you grew up in a house with specific house rules. Uh, may, maybe even in your own apartment. Some of you live in a house with housemates and roommates, and maybe in, in your own living quarters and your living spaces, you've got house rules, right? Like on Tuesday, we all do these chores, and on Wednesday, this happens in this house, right? Like may, th these are house rules that, that the members of the household abides by. For instance, in my home, in my home, you generally, you generally take off your shoes when you enter into the house, now, I'm not going to berate you if you wear your shoes in the house, uh, but, but in our house, we take off our shoes when you enter in. After all, we are a, a half-Asian household. That doesn't mean that you keep one shoe on and one shoe off. It just means that we do, a certain, we do certain things in our home, uh, like taking off your shoes instead of, you know, trekking all your stuff through my house. Take off your shoes. It's just kind of a, a house rule, you know. Uh, along with that, you know, we have, uh, we have another house rule that we generally don't bring our phones to the table when it's time to eat, right? And, uh, you know, this is, my kids are too young to have phones right now, uh, but, but this is more for, you know, mom and dad, you know, Nicole and I, we, we generally don't take our phones to the table when it's time to eat, because when it's time to eat, it's time to eat. It's not time to scroll. It's not time to text. It's not time to send emails. It's time to connect as the family, as some house rules. Uh, along with these, some of these more tangible rules, we have some intangible rules in our home. In fact, we have this board. Some of you have been in our home and maybe you've seen uh, this board that hangs in our house. In fact, I took a quick picture here that communicates the kind of home that we strive to build here. Okay, and so this hangs in our, uh, in our living room and, in, and says, in this house, we do second chances. We do mistakes. We do grace. We do real. We do hugs and we hug a lot. We have two boys. They are cuddlers. Whoever marries those boys, they're going to be lucky. I mean, they'd love to cuddle. Like, they, they, they hug all the time. You know, this, we do I'm sorry. We do family. We do love. Now, these are house rules, not in the way where, like, we gather as a family and we recite these words together. You know, it's just, it's these intangible, unspoken, this is how we want to operate as a family. This is the kind of standard that we want to set as the family of God. In other words, this is how our family operates. This is how we function. In today's passage, Paul is essentially painting a picture for the people of God of the house rules for the family of God. Ephesians 5, moving into Ephesians 6, is essentially Paul laying out the house rules for the family of God. He shows us how the family of God is to operate and function in light of their identity in Christ. And here he addresses three very real-life relationships in the ancient world. The relationship between a husband and wife. The relationship between a parent and a child. And the relationship between a servant 
and their master. Now, that last one isn't one that we have in our context today, obviously. It's not one we readily see today, but it was a very natural way of being and associating with people in the ancient world. You had servants and you had masters. But, but it wasn't in the way that some of us might think of slave and master today as this sort of oppressive system that dehumanized people. In fact, these servants had the very real opportunity to work their way out of servanthood and become masters themselves. Some servants even had servants of their own. In a lot of ways, these relational systems were a form of economic, social, and financial distinctions for the people of antiquity. Now, we can probably unpack this whole relational dynamic in greater detail. In fact, we could probably take each of these relationships and unpack these in greater detail. After all, I don't know about you, but when reading this text, you may have felt some uneasiness in your soul uh, due to the old-fashioned and old-school nature of how Paul seems to be describing some of these relationships, right? Particularly when it comes to the husband and wife, now, listen, we're, we're not going to get into the weeds of, like, what did Paul mean by all of this? What did Paul mean? We'll, we'll touch on some of those as we progress here in just a few moments. But the goal of this message, believe it or not, is not to do a deep dive into what did Paul mean about children and parent relationship, husband and wife relationship, servant and master relationship. Rather, what I want to do is look at all three of these relationships from a broad perspective and point out some unique distinctives when it comes to how the family of God is to operate. If this is the blueprint, if these are the house rules that Paul had in mind when it comes to the, how the family of God is to function, what, what is he really getting at? What are, the, what are the big takeaway pieces that Paul is trying to drive home? If I were to use the framework of, of, of that board that hangs in my house, I might say that in the family of God, these are things that we do. In the family of God, this is how we operate. In each of these relationships, Paul lays out for us a few guiding principles that speak to how the people of God are to relate to one another and operate together. And the first guiding principle is this. It's mutual submission. In the family of God, we exercise mutual submission. You know, a lot of people get hung up on the kind of language that Paul uses here in this passage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. You know, these concepts are not popular concepts in our culture. Concepts like submission and obedience. Some would argue that it is immoral. It is, it is not right to impose submission or obedience upon someone else's life. And so the conclusion that we draw naturally is that this is bad. You know, this is no good. Submission is no good. Obedience is not preferred. Let's just go in and do without submission, okay? Let's just move ahead without obedience. No, no one wants to obey anyone. Like, you know, like at the end of the day, let's be our own people. Let's do our own thing. Let's live our own lives and go about our own happy way, right? Like that's, that's the mentality that we have and we carry today in our culture. The problem is that's not what Scripture calls us to. You see, as followers of Jesus, even outside of Ephesians 5, even outside of Ephesians 6, we are actually called to a lifestyle of submission. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but, but when I think about submission, my mind immediately goes to the UFC. 
and mixed martial arts. I'm a closet UFC fan, boy, I love UFC. And I, there's something about it. I don't know what it is. I, there's just something that speaks to my soul about MMA fighting. Now, I'll say this. There, there was a small part of me, a small part of me that would love to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone, you know, just like go ham on someone, like touch gloves, and let's just, just, to, just to see if I have what it takes to hang in the octagon, right? Like, there's a small, and when I say small part of me, I'm, I'm talking like 2%. The 98% of me is terrified, you know, so I, I just, there's a large part that's like, I probably will never enter into the ring with someone in that way. But listen, if you know anything about MMA, you know that not only is it absolutely brutal, right, uh, but you also know that there are several ways to win a fight in, in this sort of context. And one of the most common ways is through this method called submission. Submission. A submission in MMA is when you overpower your opponent through a particular grappling move or a grappling technique. Uh, I considered, you know, maybe demonstrating this with a volunteer, you know, like, let, let, let's, let's do this. But, you know, I just saw a lawsuit, uh, you know, just in my mind. Like, it's like college pastor chokes out a congregant at, at Penn State University. You know, Dale, the Daily Collegian doesn't need that kind of story uh, coming out of here. But, but submission is basically a, this move where you overpower your opponent through this particular grappling technique. So whether it's through a rear naked choke, an arm bar, or a guillotine hold, or a triangle hold, choke, none of which are pleasant, by the way, okay? <laughs> you don't want to find yourself in a situation like this. These are all techniques to force your opponent to essentially tap out and ultimately forfeit and take the loss. In other words, a submission is when you inflict the maximum amount of pain on your opponent's body, so much so that they are forced to quit. Now friends, if that's the picture you have in mind when it comes to submission, I promise you, you will never find yourself submitting to anyone. <laughs> you will never find yourself submitting to anyone or anything. And yet, when Christ calls us to follow him, and if you're here today and you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus in any regard, you gotta understand this. He is basically asking us to live a lifestyle that is in submission to him. He's asking us to submit to him, to yield to him, to defer to him. The difference here is Jesus isn't trying to put us in a guillotine hold. <laughs> He's not trying to choke us out. In fact, in asking us to submit to Christ, what he's doing is he's trying to free us from the need to control our lives, something that we can't even do in the first place. He's trying to free us from the delusion of controlling our own lives. And so he says, submit to me and I'll lead you. Submit to me and I'll take it from here. Submit to me and follow me. But then he takes it one step further. As followers of Jesus, not only are we called to submit to Christ, he tells us to submit to one another. Submit to one another. Do you know that this whole passage that we looked at today falls under the umbrella of just one verse, verse 21? We, we, we didn't read this verse today. We read it a couple of weeks ago, and it's a simple verse. And this verse says, submitting to one another or submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Believe it or not, friends, both husbands and wives are to submit to one another. Children and parents 
are called to submit to one another. Masters and servants are called to submit to one another. And you want to know what that means? It means you forfeit your right for the rights of the other. Submission to one another, mutual submission means you forfeit your right for the right of the other. One of my seminary professors used to say it this way, in order for unity to prevail, my rights must be curtailed. In order for unity to truly prevail, my rights must be curtailed. And oh, this is so difficult. This is so challenging. This is so counterintuitive. This is so countercultural in so many regards. We live in a world where it's all about fighting for my rights. Don't take my rights from me. Don't infringe upon my rights. I have the right to do this, to live this way, to say what I want and do what I want. It's my right, dang it. And then you could fill in whatever kind of blanks you want after that. But at the end of the day, the message is don't mess with my rights. It's my rights. You want to know how Jesus handled his rights? Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped. If anyone had the right to hold on to their right, was it not Jesus? Was it not the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of heaven who came down? Was it not him who had the right to hold on and boast and stand on his Writes, Jesus, though he was in the very form, the very nature of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do with his right? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, or he submitted himself, by becoming obedient, there's that nasty word again, none of us like that word, but Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Mutual submission, friends, is to mark the life of every believer because every believer is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Here we are as people holding on and fighting and claiming for our rights. All the while, Jesus literally laid down his right. He forfeited his right for the right of you and me, for the good of you and me. Mutual submission, friends, is to mark the life of every believer. And, and, and I know, I know this is not a popular opinion. Is it not a popular, you know, like it cuts against the grain of everything that our world teaches us, right? It's a, what do you mean forfeit my right, forfeit like, you know, the, the, the rights of so many different people groups and so many different communities and so many different individuals. Like, you know, it's like it's, it's a noble, virtuous thing to fight for your rights. And yet when you look at scripture, there's, there's, there seems to be this nuanced difference in how the people of God are to operate. In the family of God... We don't fight for our rights. We exercise mutual submission. And, and I don't know. I, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to try to stand here and convince you of that. That might be something that the Holy Spirit needs to convince you of or convince us of. Right? Because, again, it just, it just feels so counterintuitive. And yet we've got to wrestle with the truth of Scripture and the gravity of what Scripture instructs us towards. And it seems to instruct us towards this idea of 
mutual submission. The second guiding principle that Paul shows us is this principle of holy honor. In the family of God, we exhibit holy honor. You know, I briefly mentioned this at our, at our fall retreat this past weekend. Uh, our, our ACF leadership team uh, here at our church family uh, made a very moving and uh, touching video uh, for my wife and I for Pastor Appreciation Month, which was last month, October. Uh, we're in November, but friends, it's not too late to appreciate your pastor. Just saying, you know, I just, uh, I'll just put it out there. But uh, it, it, no, our, our leadership team put a wonderful little video together to, um, to, to just recognize us and to appreciate us. And, and I got to say, it was so deeply honoring. It was so deeply honoring. And I, after watching that video, I mentioned to the group, I mentioned how I think in the body of Christ, we need to learn to honor each other more often. We need to create a culture of honor within the family of God. This is something of a lost art that I think I believe is worthwhile recapturing. But now what does it mean to honor someone? What does it mean to honor someone? Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that you go out and make a video for every person you want to honor. You know, that's not the, that's not the message. That's not the goal here. But, but let me run this through the grid of these relationships as, as mapped out in Ephesians 5 and 6, right? So you've got to understand the context. You see, for the people living during this time, there were social systems in place that governed these particular relationships. In other words... There was a certain hierarchy of uh, societal value placed on these certain individuals. So, for instance, the husband was seen as more significant and valuable than the wife. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not making a case for or against that. I'm just saying, historically speaking, during, during, in the ancient world, this was the, this was the common thread. This was what was normal in society. The husband held more significance and value than the wife. Children were largely ignored and dismissed as complete categories of people. They were, they were completely disregarded as human beings. Children were largely ignored. Servants, as you might imagine, held little societal value during this time. And what Paul does here is something extraordinary. He instills a thing of holy honor. He reminds us that the good news of the gospel obliterates any and all hierarchical systems that may have once been in place. You see, because of the cross, slave and master are now equal. Because of the cross, parent and child are now equal. They're not identical in nature. Obviously, their roles are different. But when it comes to their value, they are now made equal because of the reconciling work of the cross. Because of the good news of the cross, husbands and wives are now equal in value, whereas historically wives were seen as less than. And as old-fashioned as this text might seem at first glance, Paul was presenting something radical here during his time. He was essentially saying, husbands... You can no longer do whatever you want and live however you want. Your responsibility now, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he's done in your life, your responsibility is to make the life of your wife far better. You can't just go off and do what you want and completely disregard your other half. Your job now, in light of Jesus, is his job as it relates to the church. You are to nourish, care for, lift up, elevate, prop up your wife and not do what the world has taught you to do. 
Husbands, your life is, has taken on a whole new effect in your marriage. You have this great and noble task ahead of you now. Parents, you can no longer treat your kids with contempt and disregard, but rather invest in their future, care for them and nourish them in the Lord, raise them up in the instructions of the Lord. Don't disregard them and don't ignore them and push them to the wayside. Masters, you can no longer take advantage of your servants, but rather you are to treat them with the utmost fairness and kindness. You see, to honor someone is to elevate someone to their original starting position of how God sees them. It's to elevate this person to their original status to how God sees them in the very first place is to acknowledge the imago Dei, the image of God in each individual. It's to celebrate God's unique fingerprint on an individual's life. That's part of what was so moving about that video that our, our leadership team made. They were, they were uh, pointing out and addressing things that they've seen in me and in my wife, Nicole, and our, and our service to this community. And, and, and that's what honoring people is. It's acknowledging God's unique fingerprint on people's lives and calling out the Imago Dei, calling out the image of God, the way God sees them, and not what, not what the world puts on them, but it's to say, hey, friend, rise up. I want to elevate you. I want to lift you up. I want to prop you up to your original starting position. And where is that? It's all on how God sees you. It's all how God perceives you. That is your starting position. And so honor is when we elevate people's posture. We, we lift their disposition to their original starting point. And I wonder what it would look like for a community of people to come around each other and speak words of life and to come around each other to honor each other in a way that lifts our countenance, that lifts our dispositions, that lifts our posture in this way. In the family of God, we exhibit holy honor. And this leads me to my third and final point. The last guiding principle that Paul points us to is the Christ filter. In the family of God, we use the Christ filter. In other words, we see all of life through the lens of Jesus. We approach every relationship in our lives through the lens of Jesus. We handle every circumstance and every situation in our lives through the lens of who Jesus is. Jesus colors everything about how we perceive life. And that includes how we relate to one another. Friends, did you notice how many times Paul referred back to Christ in each of these exhortations, in each of these relationships in, the, in today's passage? When he addressed husbands and wives, notice what he said. He said, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And masters, do the same to them. By the way, are, are you seeing the mutual submission language here, right? Like, I, I mean, it's all throughout this passage. There's this, this sense of mutual submission. Paul doesn't let any one party off the hook. He says, you are both called to submit to one another. 
Ephesians 5.21, right? But, but what is also prevalent throughout this passage is Paul's understanding of the reason we submit to one another. The reason we honor one another is because we first and foremost submit to and honor Christ in our own lives. It's because we honor Christ, it's because we have submitted our lives to Christ that we then submit to one another and we honor one another in the family of God. You see, friends, I think we've done a terrible and awful thing in today's world and in our theologies of separating our worship from God from our treatment of people. We think those are two totally different things. Our worship of God is one thing, and our treatment of people is another thing. One has nothing to do with the other. There may be a slight point of connection, but large, but large in part, they are complete two different categories. We're like, I have no problem submitting to Christ. I have no issues with honoring Jesus. Seriously, I don't. But I cannot submit to this person. I cannot honor this individual. How many of us have said that before? I have. You see, a scripturally informed mindset would rather say, because I've submitted to Christ, I am now able to submit to others. Because I honor Christ in my heart, I'm able to truly honor others without any contempt, without any holding any grudges. I'm able to honor others in my life with my whole Heart. Our worship of God is deeply, intimately connected with our treatment of people. The two are inseparable. In fact, this one point informs and influences the prior two points. It's because of who Jesus is and what he has done that we are able to do what he has called us to do. It's because of who Jesus is and what he has done that I am able to do what he has called me to do, and that is live a life of mutual submission where I care more about the rights of others than I do preserving my own, where I'm able to honor the people around me because the family of God functions best when we elevate each other's positions and postures and dispositions. And it's all because I live my life peering through this Christ filter. Jesus colors everything. I see all of life through Jesus. It's because of who Jesus is and what he has done that I am able to do what he has called me to do. And today, friends, we get to celebrate exactly what it is that Christ has done for you and for me in a very tangible way by taking communion together as the family of God. This time I'm going to invite the worship team forward and uh, as they come up, friends, I'm going to invite you to take out your communion elements and um, we're going to take communion here together as the family of God. You know, another thing that we do here as the family of God is we remember Christ. You know, Christ said, whenever you take of these things, whenever you take of this meal, and, and that's what it was. It was historically in the context of a meal. Uh, Jesus said, take this in remembrance of me. Remember me when you take these elements. And so in the family of God, we remember Christ. And this is, again, this, in so many ways, this is the filter in which we see all of life. It's through the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood for us that we begin to interpret all of life through that lens.